Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. I'm April Vokey, and you are listening to Anchored my chance to speak with some of the most influential people involved in the outdoors today. Join me as I travel to sit face-to-face with my guests in their own homes to learn more about their careers, opinions, history, relationships, and life both indoors and out. This episode is sponsored by Fishbrain. Fishbrain is the biggest fish-specific social media platform available on the internet. Designed to bring the fishing community together, the app allows you to follow a location, species, or particular angler. Naturally, you do not need to post your secret fishing spots, but it can be fun to share your catch with other passionate anglers. I use Fishbrain not only to see the variety of fish species being caught around the world, but also to spread awareness about proper fish handling. There's a great group of anglers online, and this app truly engages users while sitting atop endless possibility to spread education and awareness. Go to www.fishbrain.com to learn more, or get it on the App Store or Google Play. Keith Rosenis has explored some of the most remote corners of the globe, from South Africa to Russia to the Seychelles, as a young adventurer to guide to lodge owner, Keith has worn many shoes in the fly fishing industry. I sat down with Keith in the Seychelles to hear his story and to see if I could learn more about the piracy issues that once plagued his operation. I was born in a small town called King Williamstown in South Africa a long time ago. And uh, funny enough, my uh, ancestors all actually, they founded the town. So we've been there the whole, our whole lives. My father still lives there. Um, I've obviously moved on to living in the Seychelles. So 
Yeah. Now, last night over dinner, I had started to ask you about your name, the hyphenated Rose Innes. Mm. Can you just explain that to my listeners? We're Scottish, so Rose married to Innes, and it's hyphenated. So, you know, all, all Scottish people have a castle somewhere. The one side of my family is Stuart, which is also Scottish, and the other side of my family is Rose Innes, which is also Scottish. What's the history with the Scots in South Africa? Well, a lot of, a lot of the Scots came across to Rhodesia, and they lived there and uh, obviously in the early days of Rhodesia basically set the whole city the whole country up and then obviously with, with all the war and the trouble that ha- happened they had to go somewhere. So a lot of Scottish uh, went across to South Africa and uh, my grandfather was an uh, avid fly fisherman, he was a salmon fisherman, a trout fisherman, he uh, used to m- manage uh, one of the best uh, trout fishing operations in, in, in Rhodesia called Troutbeck and he also did, uh, had fly tying factories. So it's in the blood. Now he yeah. came across to South Africa and then obviously spending a lot of time with him in South Africa, it's where my footsteps start into fly fishing at the age of five. Okay, so take me down that road. Yeah, age of five, um, started fly fishing with my grandfather. You know, he was an incredible guy, incredible fly fisherman, incredible fly tire. And with all of his history coming from Scotland, catching salmon when he was a youngster, fishing all the way through Troutbeck. Inventing a lot of flies, and you know, I invented quite a few flies with him you know, in, in, in my early days. But I always had a fishing background because my father is a game fisherman. He loves game fishing, or what we call is bottom fishing in South Africa, and it's basically fishing with bait on the bottom or trawling for tuna and so forth. So we've had boats our whole lives. I started going out to sea from about the age of eight or nine. Every weekend it would be my brother or I who would take turns going out with my father, deep sea fishing. At the age of about 14, I met a, a gentleman uh, um, who was the world champion rock and surf angler. So that's throwing bait from the shore. Yeah. And uh, what I used to do is I used to work in his shop. And in return, he would take me fishing. So fished the whole way through doing competition fishing, rock and surf, ended up uh, representing South Africa uh, or making my South African colors uh, as a junior. And then it kind of evolved. You know, um, I was very fortunate. Uh, you know, it was never sort of a, a light bulb a moment in my life. I've always been involved in fishing. I never thought I would get to a stage where I could make make a living from fishing. And uh, things kind of changed when, in my late school years, uh, my father brought me out to Seychelles and I fished uh, a place called St. Joseph's. Oh, wait, so he brought, I had th- that, yeah. you just threw me a curveball. Yeah. I didn't see that coming at all. How did he hear about the Seychelles back then? So, so him and a bunch of, of friends uh, put a trip together. They heard via different people in South Africa about the Seychelles and their group of friends put a trip together to come and do uh, game fishing out in the Seychelles and they were going across to St. Joseph's and I just got invited on the trip and uh, so I jumped on the trip and the deal was that uh, I'll fish on the shore and I started trying to figure out and get information about what to expect there wasn't much there were some hand handwritten uh, maps or not handwritten like sort of uh, basic maps which which we received uh, you know um in those days, we didn't have digital photographs. We didn't have uh, Google. That wasn't out. So we, I, I, fl- I remember flying in late at night. We jumped in this car, and we, uh, we got in the boat, and we headed from my, straight out of my at night, 12, 14 hours, uh, straight across to St. Joseph's, getting there, and then realizing where, where we're at. And uh, <laughs> I didn't have any fl- flag gear. I was fishing a, a, a old New Zealand Kilwell uh, rod, which had the tip broken off. <laughs> two to one gear ratio, uh, a salmon reel, and uh, a fly line that was probably three line lengths too heavy. Yeah. <laughs> and and all the flies were tied on mustard, um, stainless steel hooks, and as flashy as possible, fishing like 20 pound maxima. 
and that was the deal. And so I'm not too sure if I was fly fishing or more than just chasing fish around the flats because, uh, you know, I caught, I caught a lot, but, and, you know, there was all these other sort of creatures that uh, sticking their tails out that I, I couldn't understand what they were. And, you know, there was obviously permit and GTs coming in. And eventually, you know, after about the week, you started identifying what things are, you know, yeah. still calling GTs kingies, you know, the way <laughs> South Africans do. And, yeah, look, it, it kind of, you know, that, that for me was an experience, and I realized cheapers, you know, Seychelles is unbelievable. It's so close to South Africa. It's got the most amazing fishing. I mean, I look back and I, I listen back to my father's stories about that trip, you know. That was one of his trips of his lifetime. I think that's what sort of kindled my, my passion for, for doing these things because going to an unknown place and figuring it out for yourself, mm-hmm. I, think that, I think that's what drives me to experience these places. And, and I think, you know, it's just, you know, to a certain extent it's hard work, but it's, to, to a big extent it's luck. And it's things just uh, happen your way and you get opportunities and you, you just got to take them. And that's, that's my life. That's basically where it's been. How old were you on that trip? Approximately. Um, I was probably, I think, about 17. Oh, wow. That's a great age 18, to experience 18, around that. there, yeah. Did so, you end up going to college after high school? So I studied advertising. And, um, yeah, there was actually a, a similar stage. So basically, just finished off my schooling. Uh, I was playing rugby, uh, studied in Cape Town, did my two years, got my qualifications, went across the U.K., and uh, I worked in a in a shop called Farlow's. Farlow's, of course. Yeah, yeah. So I worked in Farlow's for two years, and and from there I was doing trips across to Seychelles, and I was doing a, a um, I got a job opportunity to go and work at Panoy in Russia. Did you take it? I took it, and I ended up uh, f- five years later as a head guide, and I was uh, at the best time of my life, you know, guiding for Atlantic salmon. I think it was about a four month season, so it worked out nicely. It was in the off season of Seychelles. And from there, you sort of evolved into guiding in the Seychelles. Okay, you did the full five years. And how yeah. many years did you guide in Seychelles? Well, Seychelles, this is my 21st year. That's incredible. Yeah. How old are you, Keith? I'm 40. You're four- are you only 40? Yeah. yeah. Jesus, I thought, I, I, you've come, you've done so much well, stuff Well, you know, the thing is straight out of school from, uh, you know, um, into uh, sort of studying and then straight into guiding. Yeah. Well, and the thing is that I was guiding while I was in, the Lond- in London and while I was, you know, in my early, early ages. So it wasn't, uh, in the beginning, it wasn't a full-time job. You know, there was no such, such thing. There was no such thing as guiding in the Seychelles in those days. If you think about it, um, this hotel, uh, Alphonse, was, bought, was built in 1999. Oh, it's, it's that recent? Yeah. Before that, there was, there was no trips anywhere else but uh, in the inner islands, the Amaranti, so St. Joseph's and those places, and uh, Poiv, but mostly St. Joseph, that's where the trips were going. And as it got more popular, you know, um, uh, the IDC built this hotel, then uh, a bunch of South African guys came out to guide you. At that same time, I was going across to Farqua. That's where I, I basically learned a lot of my skill was at Farqua. I did the first trips ever there with fly fishermen. I still remember um, we got a boat from um, Pember. And it came across here. And uh, I was guiding eight, a mixture of Belgians and Americans. We were going across to Farquhar. And the deal was that, you know, obviously, I would sail across the captain and the crew. And we headed out. It was earlier. It was, it was October. And uh, we're heading across. And next minute, we've got the cyclone that's approaching. And we're not too sure whether we must go forward or come back. Anyway, long story short, we hit the, the sea of, of, of mammoth proportions and we lose one tender off the bow of the boat. It goes straight over the, over the top of the boat. Anyway, we get to, to Farquhar uh, day late and uh, I guess are arriving, so we didn't have much time to prep. Guests arrive on the plane and uh, as, as they come in, our chef and our, our first mate decide 
this this was too much for them, the, the trip across. So they leave on the plane. So my first You uh, lost your chef. We lost our chef and first mate. So so we anchored in in in, in, some, uh, in Farquhar Lagoon. It's it's myself, it's uh, um, the captain and his wife. We had eight guests, and uh, I'm guiding eight 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 clients at once. And Wait, that's how we used to do it. Uh, hold on. So at this time, when you because when you worked at Russia, were you just employed by an operator? Yeah. So I worked for for uh, an operator, which was an American operator in those days. Mm-hmm. It was seasonal, so right. we'd work four months of the year. And you have time all day to let your brain. I mean, I know for me anyway, when I would guide, all my business ideas would flood to me, and I would just be thinking of all the things I wanted to do. Did you start to in that time think about how you could have your own operation? And is that what happened with the Seychelles? Did you guide for someone well, else? I was the, the, at that stage, I had a company which I, which was called Fly Guide. Okay. And then okay. and so basically, I was guiding under by myself as Fly Guide, and I would get other guides to help me. And that's how in later years I met my business partner. So uh, in the early days, we would basically be guiding eight, between four and eight people when we did these trips. And they were booking, okay, so was Fly Guide contracted out by the Russian employer? No, no. So so, uh, it was just, I was just a guide. And then okay, in Russia, in the you were just I would, a guide. I would do my own guiding, uh, my own guiding in the Seychelles. And then in the Seychelles, okay, that's what I was wondering. In the so season, Russia, you were hired. Seychelles, though, this is when you started your own operation. Yeah. So you're really rooted to the Seychelles. This the was, yeah. this was you from the beginning. How did you handle so many clients? You know, I would never have been able to start the guiding without meeting people. It, it follows and meeting people in Russia. Mm-hmm. And when you're on the river, you know, the best place to, to talk about somewhere is on the river. So, you know, you're speaking to these people about the Seychelles and obviously they get interested and then they'll give you a, send you an email and then you end up guiding them in the Seychelles. So that's how it basically evolved. Yeah. And you went to school for advertising. Yep. This is perfect. I mean, it's all lining up amazingly. Yeah. Okay. So you have your company. Now you start running all these trips. Who else was running trips in Seychelles at that time? So at that stage, uh, it was... The only two operations in the Seychelles was my operation. I was doing uh, sort of a bespoke trips. So we would probably do uh, four or five trips in a row. And then we would uh, probably take a, a month off and then start again and, and guide f- four or five trips in a row. And that's how it was happening. So at that stage, uh, um, Alphonse was operational. Okay. And it wasn't just a hotel then. It was also a fishing resort. It was fishing, yeah. So there were two operations on Alphonse, going across to Saint-Francois. And there was a guy called Arne Mathieu. Oh, of course. Yeah, who caught? He was the first guy, along with Wayne Haslow, to catch uh, uh, milkfish milk on the fly. Yeah, yeah. So uh, um, after about four or five years, I think it was four years of guiding Farquhar, um, I needed. A, uh, I was using different guides, and then Anna decided that he would like to move on from Alphonse, and I asked him to come and join me on a on a trip. And uh, we got off. We got off on a, like a house on fire. We were guiding. It was easy. He would take four guests, I'd take four guests, and it, we just sort of took off from there. And I still remember taking off from, from Farquhar on the plane at the end of the season saying to, 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 to Arno, we need to do something together. And he said, absolutely, we need to do something together. And so we met up in Johannesburg and we started discussing opportunities. And uh, um, he had a company called Castaway, which he was, he was uh, operating and I had a company called Fly Guide. So we took the fly off the front and added to Castaway. Oh. And it was called Fly Castaway. That's how it started. Yeah. And that's why I first heard of you. I remember seeing all your advertising. It all makes sense now. Because, yeah. yeah, okay, all right, everything is just clicking. How long did you have Fly Castaway for? So, so Fly Castaway uh, was, I think, eight years of, of you know, 
basically when we started Fly Castaway, you know, it was straight into guiding. Arne had all of his trips planned for St. Joseph's. I had all my trips booked for uh, Farquhar and then also for Cosmolido. So um, when we started the company, um, I set up a trip on a boat called Mika, which was a schooner. And uh, um, we got an, another guy involved called Gerard Lobscher. And he came across and uh, I took him on his first trip through Seychelles. So basically what we did is we got this boat. We were on the boat with the owner. We started in Mahe. We went via all the atolls and ended up in Madagascar. It took us two months. On that trip, the decisions were made on which, which uh, atolls we were going to operate at going forward. Which, which, which atolls we're going to start off first. You know, obviously we were already at, at Farquhar. We wanted to then move on to, we did Providence and Cosmolido. And, uh, basically that was a trip. And I mean, it was incredible. I mean, funny story is we, we, we had exclusivity on the vessel and, uh, it was a big, uh, metal schooner. And while at Cosmolido, the captain was reading the charts and he wasn't reading them correctly. Well, the charts were outdated. So sand would move. So twice during the trip, while anchored inside the lagoon, he ran this big metal schooner completely dry. Oh my god! On the on the sand. So this thing, I was sitting, I still remember sitting on the flats watching this boat and just seeing the mast sort of start tilting. Now it's a hundred and twenty foot vessel. It's just tilting, 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 tilting. Eventually, <laughs> until it was lying on its side. Yeah, twice. What did, what did you guys do? Just wait. Well, for... we just continued fishing. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> Nothing you can do. <laughs> so you just wait for the tide to come wait back in. Wait for the tide to come back in. Yeah. Yeah. And then so we so then uh, everything was going really well and. and um, that boat went to Mozambique um, for the off-season, and then it was on its way back. It had all our kits on it. We were ready for the season. It was two weeks before, and I get a phone call from the, the boat owner, and he calls me. He says, Keith, I've got some bad news. I said, well, what's the story? He says, the boat's just sunk. So just basically two weeks before the beginning of the season, we've sold 14, 18 weeks of guests going to Cosmolido, and the boat sinks. What did you do? So we, uh, <laughs> we looked for other boats and we found uh, um, a boat that was operating out here already called uh, Indian Ocean Explorer. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was a disgusting boat. <laughs> uh, it smelled bad. It was very small. But you know, it had, it had uh, a sense of adventure. You know, it had this ambiance of adventure. You know, sort of it was like this, it looked like an old pirate ship. You know, it was uh, rusty. And, but the, the crew and the, the guards, that's what makes the trip. So right. we, we put our team together and we went out and we, we were fishing. We, we had one boat at uh, Farquhar and we had another boat at Cosmolido, you know, Explorer. And that's how it started. And we ended up, you know, at, at one stage we were running trips to Farquhar. We had uh, um, a boat at Cosmolido. We had uh, a boat at Providence, uh, schooners at Providence. So we were running three, three vessels at one time. It was a really uh, good organization. We had, you know, 12, 14 guides. And then piracy came. And then, you know, the it was quite a frightening experience because I was on, I was on, uh, so let me tell you another story. So Yeah, and before you do that, I have a question for you. Did you guys have any issues with the Seychelles law government at this point? I mean, you guys are a bunch of South Africans driving around the ocean and basically putting your flag into islands. Did you have any problems with that? So we, we, didn't, we didn't really put our flag into islands. You know, um, all the outer islands are owned by the IDC. So what is the IDC? It's an island development company. It's yeah. a government organization that was set up, I think about 35 years ago, to purchase back the outer islands from private, private owners. Oh, okay. And then, and then basically, so the, the outer islands are for the people, for the Seychelles people, and we are just custodians of them. All we so do you're is just we, experiencing yeah. them. Yeah, so every single trip we did, you know, all the flights in are controlled by IDC, so all permission is obtained through IDC. You have to ask for permission, you have to get your licenses, you have to get permission to do certain things. 
So um, you can't just go onto an island. You okay. can't fish an island. You've got to get permission. So, so it wasn't just a free-for-all? No. So okay. everything was really planned. And at those, at those stages, there was no exclusivity. So you could be, at a, could be in a certain area or another, but could rock up and, and there was no exclusivity. So, Tell me about these pirates. Okay. Obviously, so, we all love pirate stories. So, well, at that stage, I didn't love it. But anyway, <laughs> so, you know, the business was evolving and we decided that we need to get involved with the um, uh, ownership of vessels. Our partners in the Seychelles, uh, um, they found a boat in Tarragona, Spain. And uh, I flew out uh, to have a look at the vessel and I saw the vessel and it, was, it amazed me because this vessel was in Tarragona. It was a, an explore, exploration vessel and it had been it was privately owned and it had been redesigned and refitted to do a trip around uh, the north the northern arctic circle so basically this vessel that was a tarragon in spain had gone past the river which i used to guide on and it had this big map on the wall and i can just still remember seeing this trip and it's all plotted across going past uh, the punoy river in in, in in the baltic in the white sea and all those kind of areas all the way down and around so anyway, this guy sold this vessel, and uh, and uh, I came back and I spoke to the owners. And I said it's a great vessel. So he sent out the engineers and stuff, and they said, "Okay, right, going to buy this vessel." So it was re- the refit started started there, and then the boat started its trip. So it started its trip through through the Med, and then it came all the way through the canals, the Suez Canal, then sort of coming down to the Gulf of Aden. And as it's about to hit the Gulf of Aden, this piracy thing started, and. Um, we got delayed. The boat, the boat was delayed. We had to wait for an escort. At that stage, there was, you know, it, it had just started the, the piracy. So, after being delayed by a week, we had to cancel a week. The boat made its way through the Gulf of Aden and all the way down the coast, and eventually ended up in in, in Seychelles. So, when you say piracy, you mean Somalian pirates? Somalian pirates were, were attacking boats in the area, so they had basically had to get an escort. So exciting! So, so the boat arrives in, in, in the boat arrives in Seychelles. We get it uh, fitted out. We were about two weeks late for our season. We managed to make other arrangements with the other trips. And the boat now comes down, and I'm on, on, on the big boat. I'm operating uh, Providence from, from Farqua. And Indian Ocean Explorer is with my, my, other, my business partner and the other team, and they're on Cosmolito. And um, i just done five weeks uh, on, on the Dugong Mars Dugong, which is the, the boat I was talking about. And uh, Cosmolito had just finished because the season ended, ended there earlier. And I was on the bridge, and I remember wa- I was waiting for my new set of guests to come in. And I remember listening to the radio, and it was uh, Nat Geo Explorer uh, was talking to the island. But I heard it as Indian Ocean Explorer. So I got onto the, 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 the radio, and I said to Indian Ocean Explorer, I said, uh, what are you doing here? I mean, you should be at Cosmolito. He said, no, no, we're not at Cosmolito. Have you heard? I said, well, have we heard what? No, Indian Ocean Explorer has been taken by pirates. <gasps> so I had my guest and my, my uh, um, business partner on that boat. Oh, my God. And, uh, but what had happened was that they had got off the boat. The boat had set sail. It was taken a long way away from uh, Cosmolito. Um, it was on, on its way back to Mahe, so it was taken a long way away. They had got in the plane. They had flown to, to Mahe. By the time I had found out about this, and I was calling, because they didn't even know about it, by the time I, I was calling them, their flight had been delayed, so they were in the air. So I was calling, calling his phone, and it was just going straight to voicemail. So I thought, oh, my goodness, we've, we've got an issue here. Uh, our team's been taken by, by the pirates. Oh, my God. But meanwhile, they'd been delayed, and they were in the air, and by the time, you know, 
four hours later, I, uh, he got the frantic calls on his phone. He <laughs> called me on the set phone. He said, no, no, we're in, we're in South Africa. And that was the start of it. And so it was, Who was on the boat, It though? was all our guards. Uh, Yako was on the boat. He got uh, taken by pirates? No, he didn't. Who did get taken by so pirates? So the crew got taken by pirates. Oh, how many there, were there? There were seven. Okay, there are still there. They made it through, right? Yeah, no, it was, uh, it was a stage of, I think the, what happened was that they, the privacy happened. They would take them back to Somalia, um, take them ashore, hold the boat as ransom, hold the, the crew as ransom. Normally a negotiation would happen. You'd get the crew back and then they would negotiate for the, for the boat. And that was done by money dropped via the air. Seychelles government uh, negotiated and got, got the crew back after 89 days. 89 days? 89. How did they treat the crew? I mean, obviously, I'm just curious how the Somalians treated them. Did they no. have dinner with their families or were they no. tied up and you know put in a cave somewhere? No, they were tied up. They were in the mountains. They weren't tied up, but they were obviously watched. I mean, if you take people and you put them in the mountains in the middle of Somalia you're not going to get away you know the thing is so the guys the guys were taken care of they were malnutri- they had malnutrition so you know they, they were obviously were living in whatever the, the pirates we, we, we were living on, living on so it's it was a tough experience for them, you yeah. know, very tough. But I heard a book was written about it. Is that true? Yeah, there's a, yeah. The, the captain was a guy called Francis Ruku, and he wrote a book. I wrote a little forward in it, and it was yeah, it was uh, it was a terrible experience for them. But you know, the thing is, they got back uh, safe. The issue is that the, the price took some time to resolve because you know. Um, it's a big area, and, and uh, these guys were desperate. The pirates were desperate to come across, and they, they you know, after obviously ransom. But slowly, you know, with with all the incidents happening, eventually the world got together, and they sorted out the pirates. And since then, there's been absolutely not one single piracy uh, incident. It's safe. There's nothing, nothing to worry about. But it was a turning a turning curve in my life because you know, basically, from from having these operations uh, running really well to shutting them overnight to then having to now try to find uh, land-based operations, which we did at, in Farquhar. We had a land-based operation there. And then we went across to uh, explore other destinations, and we've, we uh, ended up at uh, um, St. Brandon's in Mauritius. It's like 1,000 nautical miles away from here. So onto uh, onto uh, St. Brandon's, which is obviously uh, too far away for the price to affect it. And then, uh, um, yeah, thank goodness, uh, because of uh, policing, because of you know the, the U.S., the U.N., everyone getting involved, the Seychelles government, you know they they, they took care of the piracy, and um, it's yeah it's hundred percent safe now. Coming up, Keith and I talk about future plans and the realities of having a home away from home. Again, thank you to Fishbrain for making this episode possible. Check them out at fishbrain.com or subscribe to the app to receive interesting fishing facts, techniques, and destinations. Where did your business go from there? Um, you know, for me, a big turning point, you know, is, is being able to, I've seen so many fisheries get negatively impacted by not what you're doing, but by alternative groups coming out then, not treating the fish correctly, not, you know, obviously fly fishing is, 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 a, is a responsible sport. If you fish uh, barbless hooks, catch and release, you don't lift the fish uh, by the tail, you don't hold them in the gills, you, know, you don't wipe their slime off, you're responsible. You don't uh, drag them up on the beach. You know, you're, you can manage a fishery. Whereas if you're doing conventional angling, the guys are fishing treble hooks, they're pulling out one GT at a time, throwing it on the boat, you know, it's irresponsible and it affects the fishery and commercial fishing as well. So at a stage in my life, you know, um, I wanted to be, not say in control, but be able to manage the fishery to a certain extent. Mm-hmm. So the decision was made in my life that, that, that I wanted to be involved in an organization which has some sort of 
role in how it manages the, 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 the destination and the fishery. And um, the opportunity arose that um, um, our, our business partners in, 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 in this, this venture, um, the Collins family, that I went and worked at Deroche and ran, ran the organization for them there, the fishing organization for there. Were you still with Fly Castaway at that point? No, I'd already left. So I'd sold up and, 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 and moved on. Honor had also by that stage left the business. He had his own business as well. Okay. So, so it sort of split into three and, and we went our different ways. Uh, different ideas. Honor wanted to go across to West Africa. Um, I wanted to have, uh, I can say, um, destinations which, which we could manage. And uh, Fly Castaway continued as, as it has gone. You know, going forward, still operating. It's a really good business, and uh, yeah. So basically, we we I went across to manage Deroche, and then from there we started looking at other destinations. And uh, Alphonse came up. And we had a look at it in September 2012. I ran it under an MOU, which is a Memorandum of Understanding, so for the old owners. And then in August 2013, we bought it. And uh, Started setting the big plan in place, so basically um, revamping everything, um, trying to launch, you know, launch not only into fishing but also into leisure, um, open up operations. Obviously, by then it, uh, the piracy had long gone, so we started uh, um, liverboard operations out at uh, Cosmolido. At that stage, we we started a liverboard operation out in the outer islands, um, Cosmolido and a stove, and then with a joint venture with IDC, built a lodge on a stove, which is a six key lodge or six rods. And Cosmolido, we operate an eight-rod uh, um, liverboard operation on a boat called Lone Star, 84-foot uh, catamaran, really, really beautiful. And then we got a liverboard operation here called uh, Marnie, which goes across to Poivre, and then obviously the, the hotel here, which we have 12 rods that fish across at St. Francois. You're so busy. Did you ever see yourself being here? Was this the goal? This, yeah, that's definitely always been the goal. You just don't seem like the sort of guy who's quite content just sitting on the riverbank, you know, watching other people all day you seem like your brain is always ticking yeah no well it's uh, you know what I think I think you know um, at a stage in your life you've got to decide whether you're going to be content guiding mm. or you want to um, you know further yourself with regards to business and obviously um, staying in the, in, in the industry it's not easy I mean no, it's, it's not, not easy not being a guide in the industry I mean fishing operations open and close on a daily basis. It's a scary leap. I remember when I took the leap, I was really freaked out. And yeah. like, how am I going to make a living at this? Am I still going to be relevant? Do What's my role exactly? It was scary. But uh, I just, I got to the point, I don't know if you got to this point, I got to the point where I just could not sit there for 10 hours and have, uh, you know, uh, you can only instruct somebody for so long before they just want to be left alone. And my yeah. brain would just go nonstop. Yeah. And, I, and you just, you look at your life and you're like, I, I can't. I can't do this forever. I just can't. There's got to be more that I can apply my business sense to in this industry. Yeah, I think everyone at some stage in their life suffers burnout, yeah. and uh, I've had burnout while guiding numerous times. I mean, I can remember sitting sitting on a boat thinking, "I've still got uh, two more weeks to go." I'm 15 weeks into the season, I haven't had a day off. My fingers are sore. My back sore. Um, sunburnt, and you know, you just think, you know, what am I doing this for? And I think I think it's those moments when you when you stretch yourself and you realize how much you you can actually do 
and how far you can push yourself, then you realize how much more you can actually do in your life. So exactly. So That's I think exactly I think right. you know everyone, um, you know, and but a business like this, you you cannot run it without being a guide. No, I was so we had dinner last night. I had dinner with you and, and Devin last night, and it was really interesting listening to you guys because you'd had your strategy meeting and you had you guys are always busy on this island, and we were talking about how you guys still sometimes guide, and we were talking about boat design, and I was thinking just listening to you both, you could not run this operation without having been in the field yourself. It would, it would be impossible. Yeah, you learn. I mean, the thing is that you learn over the years is that mistakes are expensive, mm. especially when you're on the outer islands. You choose the wrong boat, and you buy eight of them, it comes out, yeah, it's the wrong thing. You can't send it back. Yeah. You, um, <laughs> That's true. You, 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 you don't order the correct spare parts or you don't have them, you have to fly them in. So, for instance, we have a generator failure on the island and uh, the circuit breaker is gone and we don't have a spare we have to fly a plane in uh, to obviously get energy on the, on the island. We have to fly a plane in. It's a, it's a $14,000 problem. So you've got, to, you've got to foresee all the mistakes, foresee all the issues that can happen. You've got to make sure that your guide team is very strong mm. because a tired guide team makes, makes mistakes. And without being able to experience being so tired and know where the, where the mistakes we made, you won't have those backup plans. So you know, from that point of view... Um, Devon and I, we like to guide as much as we can, but often we, we, we don't get as many days as we, we, we would like to. But because, you know, you've got to stay, stay in touch with what's happening. You've got to feel, you know, is the destination still fishing as well as it should be? Should we be closing areas off? Has your clientele changed? Are the guides uh, running the operation correctly? Or is, your, is your team running the operation correctly? And often, you know, just like a impromptu sort of trip to a destination, you'll figure out a lot of things that you could improve. I think you're always learning something. Every every yeah. year you learn something, so it's uh, you're never going to know everything. How far do you want to take this? Well, and I'm not going to go down the conservation road yeah. yet. Yeah. I'm going to lead you there in a minute. But from a business stance, because you're a businessman, I I see you as a businessman who knows how to fish, or you know, a guide, who, whatever it may be. But at the end of the day, however you've gotten here, I see you as a businessman. How far do you want to go? Do you want to have far more operations? Yeah, I would, I would like to be, you know, have five operations which are running uh, um, smoothly, which are being managed correctly. For me, the most important thing, I know you say we'll talk about the conservation later, but for me it's about the conservation. Let's go into that, it now. That's all it is. Yeah. It's uh, preserving these places, making sure that we don't we don't put too much pressure on them, making sure they're sustainable, making sure that we're here uh, protect them for many years. And... Uh, Showing people what what uh, what amazing things the Seychelles has, mm-hmm. you know, these islands are incredible. There's there's nowhere like this in the world, you know. And yes, you have good day, good good weeks and bad weeks with fishing with regards to weather, tide, moon phase, you know. And the thing is that the beauty out there and the, the variety out there is is constant. It's it's always there. Um, it's up to the angler to to obviously capitalize. So is that what drives you then? Because in, in speaking to you, because I've kind of picked away at you all week. I like to interview people at the end of the week because I kind of like to read you guys here, read you guys there. I mean, obviously, we all like to make money. That's yeah. fair. But I can also usually read the people who are just doing it for the money. I mean, we'd all be lying if we said we were in business and don't want to be able to eat at the end of the day. But I genuinely believe that you are really interested in managing this resource properly. And and I never really understood the tie-in, but now that I know that you've been here for so long, I understand why your heart is so fixated on the Seychelles. What have you noticed in the fishery over the last 20 years? Well, it's actually getting better. 
you know, the thing is that the government's now listening, which is quite, which is quite amazing that they, you know, there's, there's, at the moment we've got a plan in place where, with the, where certain areas are going to be demarcated as marine protected areas. Some are going to be marine managed areas. Oh, wow. So there'll be rod limits imposed at all the destinations, you know, still, well, not all the destinations, a lump sum of, of, of destinations, but at the moment, you know, the Seychelles is for the Seychelles people. So a commercial boat can come and fish offshore on the reefs here, whereas uh, foreign boats are not allowed to do it. So there's no real protection of, of the fishery to a certain extent. They can't come on shore. They obviously can't fish inside the lagoons. They can't catch turtles. They can't do all that kind of stuff. But they can still fish very close to our reefs. The idea is to try and, try and you know, obviously get a balance. So make sure, in the, you know, the Seychelles government, their plan is to make sure there's sufficient areas for, for the commercial anglers, anglers to fish and there's sufficient areas for the marine protected areas or marine managed areas to be. They realize that, you know, um, a dead fish is, is uh, worth far less than a live fish. Now, for instance, you know, the bonefish you catch many times, you know, it's uh, the amount of money which we generate from one bonefish versus a dead bonefish lying on, on, on a plate somewhere or lying in the fish market gets absolutely, has absolutely no value. So after all the years, I think it's now being heard, the National Assembly understanding, uh, you know, the, the, the facts now so that, you know, a country can make far more money out of having a, a pristine environments versus having commercial fishing and so forth in certain areas. Um, and that's, that's basically the message that's getting through, you know. So six years ago when I decided that I wanted to be involved in operations which we can have a say and manage to a certain extent. And that was my decision that I want to be uh, more involved with, with uh, conservation and uh, being responsible. Um, because I, I, at that stage I saw some destinations which were really, really badly affected by, by spin fishermen, by commercial fishing, uh, overfishing, uh, and that's, that's basically, you know, that, that basically has driven me to, to a stage where, you know, I'd like to protect this place and these de- the different de- destinations we're at. It looks like you're doing a good job at it. We're trying. We're trying. We, we have a non-profit organization called Alphonse Foundation, and we generate uh, funds by fundraising, by donations, from guests, the money goes into that, that, that foundation. From that foundation, we fund uh, the Island Conservation Society, which we have uh, rangers and scientists on the island as we speak. And we're doing all sorts of uh, programs. We do fish monitoring, uh, bird monitoring, turtles, tortoises. We uh, do uh, um, tortoise rescue. We buy uh, tortoises in Mahe that uh, um, are in confined spaces, and we bring them over here. Oh, and, I didn't know that. And, yeah, we rescued nine this year. Uh, we've got nine big uh, tortoises that are ranged from the age of 50 to, from, sorry, from about 10 to 50 years old. They're huge. Yeah. So we've got, we've got now on the island, we've got 50 tortoises. My goodness. And th- the fact of the matter is here is that we wouldn't have been able to protect all the other species here if it wasn't for the money we earned from fishing. Yeah. That's fact. What's the deal with the coconut trees here? Is it true that, or the palm trees, is it true that there weren't that many palm trees and no. now there are so Alphonse, in the old days, in this, I think in the 60s around there, um, this used to be a, a copra um, plantation. So it was privately owned. Um, they would farm it. So they had all the coconut trees were planted and they would farm copra. It was, I think, I'm not too sure that the, the date's probably 20, 30 years when, when IDC bought the island back from the private owners and then obviously set their plans forward with, with developing the outer islands. And uh, as I said before, in 1999, they started the, the hotel here. How long are you here at a time? You're here for months at a time. So I spend I spend uh, over 200 uh, days a year uh, in the Seychelles. So yeah. um, 
and my time is spent you know, going between the destinations. But uh, you know, with the leisure oriented stuff happening on this island, I've spent most of my time here. My girlfriend's uh, allows me to do it. So uh, um, yeah, I knew, you know, I think it's I'm like I'm very lucky. I'm very fortunate. Myself and Devon are very fortunate. We've got uh, and everyone looks at us and say, you know, you guys are. You're lucky you've landed with your bums in the butter, but you know it, it, it is hard work. You know, staying away from from your family for so long. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, this is living out of a bag for twenty years. It's not easy. No, but you know what? The thing is that uh, you know, even when you set all that aside of the hardship of you know long hours working, always uh, you know leisure is not easy. You know, every single person that comes on the island is excited about coming to the island. You've got to put on a brave face or a smiley face and talk mm-hmm. to them and interact. So you know, it becomes a bit monotonous. But at the end of the day. When you take it and you shove that and you put that all aside, we are very fortunate. Yeah. We're in the most beautiful place in the world. We're involved with fishing every single, single days of our lives. When we go and, and have a break, you know, for a month or whatever, we go fishing. So, you know, I never, I never imagined that I would be able to be sitting in, this, in the seat that I'm sitting at the moment where we have a successful business. We are involved with amazing people. I mean, our staff is incredible. I mean, we have incredible guides. You know, everyone works hard. And everyone enjoys it together. So, I mean, nothing could be better. I'll give you that. Yeah. I'm going to let you meet your dad. Is there anything that you would like to add or ask me? No, nothing. I mean, obviously, I've, I've followed you through the years, uh, going back um, quite a few years. I actually went I actually went to BC and I fished um, the Skeena Basin, um, bulk, the, the Skeena, the Bulkley, and the, the Maurice. Um, because of the stuff I'd seen, you had been done. Yes. Been doing. Don't tell the steelhead guides that. Uh, yeah, they hate so me already. <laughs> it's pretty cool. I, I, I didn't go and guide it. I went uh, fully guided. Okay. I spent 11 days. Uh, I was only supposed to go for seven days, and then I ended up spending 11 days. Good. So okay. it was it was pretty awesome. You know, I've, I've done a lot of spay, spay casting with my days and salmon and stuff, so yeah. it was it's natural for me to go and do it. You have um, to come back and let me know when you're there. Absolutely. I'm coming back soon. We'll go get some fish. Yeah, great. Thanks, Keith. Okay, cool. And that concludes this episode of Anchored. Thank you so much for listening. Please leave a review about Anchored online.